I'm your host, Gavin Roos, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is pilot, attorney, and renowned author Stephen Kuntz. A native small-town West Virginian, Stephen studied political science at West Virginia University, entered the U.S. Navy, and began his flight training in Pensacola, Florida. In 1969, he joined an A-6 and Trooper Attack Squadron and completed two combat cruises aboard the USS Enterprise, and later held assignments as an A-6 flight instructor and worked as an assistant catapult and arresting gear officer aboard the USS Nimitz. Stephen left the Navy in 1977, moved to Colorado, and graduated from the University of Colorado School of Law in 1979. In 1986, Naval Institute Press published his first novel, Flight of the Intruder, and it spent 28 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list before appearing on the big screen in 1991. He's since been published in nearly four dozen novels, nonfictions, and anthologies. Stephen co-authored a nonfiction entitled Dragon's Jaw that published in May, and his most recent novel, The Russia Account, just released this month. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Stephen. I'm honored that you made time. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Gavin. Now, I understand you're still flying, and I wasn't sure whether to call you at this point a naval aviator or a pilot, but I suppose they've both been accurate at different times in your life. Well, that's correct. I was a naval aviator while I was in the service, and now I'm just a plain old civilian pilot. <laughs> do, uh, do do you still get the occasional barrel roll in? No, no, I don't have a <laughs> acro- acrobatic airplane. Our, our little airplane uh, just gets us from point A to point B. We have a lot of fun along the way, but uh, we use it for transportation. Now, I just recently started reading the Russia account, and this is a really gripping original work. For for readers who are new to you or this book, what would you like them to know about this story? Well, the the story is really uh, uh, a takeoff on current events. Mm -hmm. The, uh, The setup is that and this is an actual occurrence, a small branch bank of uh, uh, actually a Danish bank called Dansk Bank was in Tallinn, Estonia, and uh, had a bunch of Russian depositors. And they started running a billion dollars a week through that, that little branch bank. They transferred the money on to shell corporations all over the world. Of course, you know, you wonder where all that money came from, and even more interesting, you wonder where it all went. And so the banking authorities in Europe, America, and the uh, EU are trying their best to uh, figure it all out. But I, I decided, you know, that's a, that's a good story, and I can supply the answers, which is what <laughs> fiction writers do. Absolutely. So I did. Yeah. I did. And this, the, uh, the book was originally going to be called... Uh, the devil's army but my publisher said oh you can't do that you know russia is hot right now anything with russian the title will Mm -hmm. sell so we'll call it the russia account not the russian account but the russia account and so you know so what do you do you know they write the checks that feed me and so i said okay (laughs) I, i surrendered i'll grab for the dollars now, like a lot of thriller writers my age, the first guy I met in this genre was Jack Ryan. The the second, though, was Jake Grafton with Flight of the Intruder. <laughs> I've been sincerely grateful to have read that book since about 1990. 
And among uh, several tours of duty in Southeast Asia, my stepdad served at one point as a door gunner on a couple Huey crews that got shot down, I think, like three times in about 1969 and 1970. He obviously never talked much about his experiences there and that event in particular. So as a kid, I think I learned more about Vietnam through you and Jake Grafton's experiences in Flight of the Intruder. And in some way, that really helped me understand a little more about my stepdad and that part of his life. So I, I've wanted to thank you for a long time. So your, your writing is truly appreciated and <laughs> much more than just entertaining and informing. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, the the Vietnam stuff, uh, both the uh, Dragon's Jaw and Flight of the Intruder uh, and the Intruders, which was the follow-up to that book, you know, they're really about the guys that, uh, that I knew in the service and all the things they went through fighting a very unpopular war. Mm-hmm. And they're doing the best they could and in an honorable way. And I thought it was a real pleasure to know these gentlemen. I'm delighted that I was one of them, that I sat in their midst as an equal. And uh, I still carry that. I'll carry that all my life. I think every veteran does. Even if they don't talk about it, it's mm-hmm. part of their life and maybe a very important part. Yes. Now, readers first meet Jake when he's – flying intruders in the Vietnam War and readers today who are new to you in the Russia account are, are going to meet an administrator at CIA. And I wonder how you decided over time to advance the trajectory of his career over the last five decades. Well, you know, it's sort of funny that the second book I wrote, the second novel, was a book that called Final Flight. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a book I thought up in the Mediterranean when I was serving aboard Nimitz on active duty and about how easy it would be for uh, terrorists to get aboard the ship while it was in port. Mm-hmm. And I kept playing with that idea and came up with Final Flight. And and my publisher, uh, which was Doubleday, wanted Jake Grafton in it. Well, he, you know, this was well after Vietnam, and he couldn't yes. be a lieutenant, so I made him the CAG. That would be a, uh, <laughs> at that point, he would have been a yeah. captain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, years had passed and he was now a captain. Well, that sort of got me, you know, committed to the fact that Jake was going to get older with mm-hmm. every book. Yes. And, uh, you know, that's always something that every novelist has to worry about if you use re- recurring characters. Do the characters get older? Uh, mm-hmm. Are they always the the handsome young stud or does, you know, does age uh, thicken their waistline and thin their hair as real people. And so anyway, once I was committed to that, the publisher still wanted to keep using Jake. And so uh, I had to uh, come up with different places for him to be an action adventure hero. And finally, uh, you know, about 10 novels into it, I said, you know, he's getting a wee bit long in the tooth for this, and so I need some, <laughs> I need some uh, young sidekicks that can do the heavy lifting, and so uh, eventually I settled on Tommy Carmelini, mm-hmm. who's a burglar and a thief that uh, was told he joined the CIA or go to prison, and so Tommy became Jake's uh, sidekick, if you will, the, the Robin for Batman. And so uh, that works pretty well. And so Jake and Tommy are back in uh, the Russia account. 
Now, they haven't been in all my novels by any stretch. Mm -hmm. I wrote nine co-authored novels that uh, they didn't appear in. I've written uh, at least one thriller, The Russia, uh, let's see, The Red Horseman, mm -hmm. that they weren't, not The Red Horseman, but, uh, boy, they're all running together now. But uh, <laughs> There's they, been more than a yeah, the fortunes of war they were not in, mm -hmm. but they have been in uh, you know a lot of the thrillers, and so and of course I wrote three sci-fi books: Saucer, Saucer the Conquest, and Saucer Savage Plan. They weren't in that, and uh, that was you know a sort of a wonderful idea I had of what would it be like to fly a flying saucer, mm -hmm. and uh, Jake and Tommy didn't need to be in that one. <laughs> Stepping into the Russia account, this is the first book I, I've ever read that is such a Venn diagram of noir and espionage where you have a, a first-person point of view with you know, an, an espionage or techno-thriller, and I, I wonder what it was like to, to try to write that and make sure that it got published. Well, uh, you know, I, I decided to, when I started to use uh, Tommy Carmelini as a, a main character and the first book that I did that in was a novel called Liars and Thieves and uh, I decided I was going to try first person I'm a, I'm a fan of the first person storytelling mm -hmm. yes I think it gives it gives uh, the writer uh, a, a way to actually explore the characters the main character anyway in a way that you can't do it in third person so, but it presents a lot of plot problems, you know. This mm -hmm. this person narrating the story can only tell you what he can see or experience. Right. And in a thriller, that's very, very difficult. So I decided to have Tommy tell his part of the story in first person, but the rest of the story is told in conventional third person. So at first, I got some first couple novels that I did that format, uh, I got uh, emails from people that some people liked it and some didn't. Mm -hmm. And then finally everybody quit bothering to even <laughs> comment on it. You know, they yeah. said Kuntz is going to do what Kuntz is going to do. And, you know. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely has become a, a pretty popular thing to do in the last few years that uh, it, it's not, you know, just, uh, you know, this book or this, this genre, but it, it seems like a lot of, a lot of investigator and cop stories are popular first person yeah. antagonist and third person everybody else and i think it's a great compromise between that intimacy of the noir but the the knowledge that readers have to have in a thriller well i thought it was too and so you know i i can do things with tommy that i certainly can't do in uh, third person he can uh, be flip he mm -hmm. can be stupid he can make mistakes you know he can uh, tell you what he's thinking not what he's saying which you mm -hmm. can't do in a, in, in third person yeah. very well now aspiring writers get a lot of advice around write what you know and it certainly seems like you started out doing that i, I wonder what first inspired you to start writing fiction and how did you craft uh, jake grafton and his comrades well that was I, I when i was living the vietnam experience that would be the uh, the final two cruises of Enterprise uh, in 71, 72, and then 72, 73. I thought this would make a wonderful novel, mm -hmm. but of course I didn't know how to write it. I had no idea how to write a novel. And uh, 
But after the war, I became a flight instructor, and so I would sit down at home with my typewriter and try to write what it was like to fly the airplane. And I was flying the airplane every day, and so I'd come in at night and try to write about it. And what I figured out was it's not what you put in, it's what you leave out. There's so many sensations and uh, sights and sounds and so on that you can't put it all in. You could write a whole book about one flight. And so you've got to be selective and still learn to convey the mood and the emotion of the, of the scene. And so I played with it for about 10 years, but it didn't have a plot. And finally, uh, I, I thought up a plot, a little, a little plot about a pilot that tried too hard and flew unauthorized missions. And I thought, well, that, that'd be enough of a plot to hang all these flying stories. Yes. The flying stories are what I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had about 13 or 14 of them, and I thought, that is enough of a plot. And so when I got a divorce in uh, 1984, all of a sudden I had plenty of time and absolutely no money. <laughs> yeah. if, you've ever, if you've ever been through the, uh, the American divorce uh, uh, mail, you know how that uh, works. But anyway, yeah. so I got my secretary to show me how to use the uh, primitive word processor we had at the oil company I was working for. And uh, so I'd stay nights and write nights, come in on the weekends, write all, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, all day during the holidays. In five months, I had a manuscript. And so I let a friend read it. And he said, well, you got some plot problems. And so I sat down and rewrote the thing, spent two months rewriting it based on just his you know, his critique of it. And uh, he wasn't certainly a a PhD in English or a professional critic, but he was the kind of guy I'd like to sell a book to. So, you know, I thought his opinion, the opinion worked. Mm -hmm. So uh, two months later, at that point, uh, I had a a manuscript. I decided what I really wanted out of it was just two paperbacks with my name on them, you know. Yep. And I thought they'd sell down at the local, you know, store, the bottom shelf, you know, the paperback military rack. And so I've started sending out queries and had 32 rejections whenever uh, the Naval Institute, uh, I saw Hunt for Red October published yeah. by the U.S. Naval Institute, Tom Clancy's first. Yes. And I looked at it and thought, you know, that's a submarine tale. Maybe they'd be interested in the flying story. Mm-hmm. So I sent them the whole darn book, and uh, <laughs> they they uh, and a three paragraph cover letter, and they wow. uh, came back a month later and said we want to publish this, and uh, I was thunderstruck. Oh and yeah. After 32 rejections, but they said, uh, you know, we can't pay very much for it if for somebody wants to pay you a lot of money for this. Of course, I didn't have anybody who pay me 10 cents. But anyway, I. <laughs> yeah. They uh, they sent me a contract and it was uh, three pages, uh, single space, legal size. Mm-hmm. I remember I got it. I was down at the office and I got it, and I uh, flipped to the back page, found the X, signed my name, went into the ran it through the copy machine, and then put the original back in an envelope, put a stamp on it, addressed it, went down to the lobby of the building and mailed it. Then I came up, went to my desk, and sat down on my copy to see what I just signed. <laughs> I found, uh, I found, and I'm a lawyer. Yes. <laughs> I found, I found these fools, 
and agreed to give me $5,000 and six free books. And I thought, <laughs> man, I've got a fat hog here. So anyway, suckers. that was, yeah. yeah, those suckers. That's how I got into, into uh, writing. And, uh, of course, you know, much to my amazement, the book uh, went on the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for 28 weeks. And all of a sudden I realized that there's, there's got to be some money here they're going to send me a check sooner or later mm-hmm. and uh and so i started talking to some other publishers that were interested and uh enable institute wasn't really that interested in doing another book by me they decided i didn't really know how to write and uh <laughs> despite the success so, yeah. oh yeah oh yeah well that was you know they had done it you know mm-hmm. oh it okay. was their yeah. great publishing company that had done it not uh anything Steve Koontz or Tom Clancy managed to do. Right. And so uh, I had New York publishers after me, and so I settled on Doubleday and signed a one-book deal with Doubleday and wrote Final Flight, and I was off and running. You know, I've been writing uh, novels now for, well, Flight of the Intruder came out in 36 or 86, and I started writing it in 84. And so uh, here, 35 years later, I'm mm-hmm. still at it. So I guess, you know, at some point, somebody's going to say, you know, that's sort of a career. And yes. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh, your website has a tips for writers page, and I, I imagine your success means a lot of people knock on your door with questions, kind of just like I did to try to get this interview. Well, they do. What do you think the most important things about the, the craft and the purpose of fiction? Well, fiction exists to tell a story, and uh, it has to have a villain it has to have a conflict usually it's a villain and uh and the con- main conflict must be settled in the uh pages of the story and you'd be amazed how many beginning writers d- don't understand that and uh and so that's you know that's it's worth saying because people are just wasting their time if they're just scribbling away about he said she said and they don't know where they're going I guess my other piece of advice is always know, think through your story. You can outline it if you wish, but think through your story and know who the characters are, what's going to happen, how it's going to unfold, and what the climax is going to be. If you don't have a climax in mind, don't start because that's the that's your destination. You're on a journey to resolve the main conflict at that destination, that climax. And if you don't know what it is, you're just walking through the forest. And so you've got to got to think out about your story. I tell beginning writers they should spend two hours thinking for every hour they spend writing. And, uh, you know, you can do it on your way to work. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do it laying in bed at night. Wherever you do it, uh, you need to... To, to really think about your story until you see the scenes and see the characters and know how you're going to put your story together. If you don't do that, you're going to just throw away a lot of pages. Now, looking back over the length and the success of your career, what do you know today that you wish you'd known at the beginning of this adventure? <laughs> uh, golly, I don't know. I, I, uh, it's been a learning experience all the way. Uh, one of the amazing things to me 
is how much the publishing industry has changed since I got into it mm-hmm. and signed my first contract in 1985. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, paperbacks don't really exist anymore except, you know, the just a few bestsellers get made into paperbacks. All the, the outlets that have existed 30 years ago don't exist now. Back then... Yeah. Every filling station, every convenience store, every mm-hmm. place you walked into had one of those wire racks full yep. of paperbacks. And yep. uh, those don't exist anymore. And uh, part of the reason, of course, is the uh, the public doesn't buy books and read them like they used to. And, uh, you know, the real readers, you know, they, you know, ha- they uh, read about half or more of the books uh, electronically. Mm-hmm. And then audio has also come on in a big way. But um, I, I don't think paper per se will ever go away. But boy, paperback sure might. Because one reason is, is the stores can't generate enough money per square foot mm-hmm. to make it worthwhile to sell paperbacks. They just, and so they want to sell hardcover. It's a revolution in the industry. Yes. Of course, you know, the uh, music industry, the film industry, yes. all the entertainment industries have all been totally changed and revolutionized by the uh, computers and, and the way the, the public wants to uh, consume their products. And, and I assume that change will continue. I mean, it's not going to mm-hmm. stop. Yeah. So anybody's getting into the business Stand by, hold your hat. It's going <laughs> yeah. to change a lot. With a narrowing market, right, as people are reading less than they did decades ago, and with more authors through the democratization of self-publishing and indie publishing, there are more people trying to write to a smaller pool, and they're all competing against each other for attention. It's a very competitive marketplace. Writing has always been competitive. And for example, when I did Flight of the Intruder, what I didn't know when I sent my manuscript off, the type script actually is type, but Mm -hmm. I sent it off to the U.S. Naval Institute, was they'd already seen and rejected 150 manuscripts as a follow-up up to The Hunt for Red October. Wow. And they saw mine. Mine was the only one they decided to publish. And they subsequently rejected over 300 more before wow. they found another, a third novel that they wanted to publish. And so getting, mm-hmm. breaking in has always been extremely difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people that, that uh, the, the odds of sitting down and writing a first novel that becomes a New York Times bestseller you have a better chance of winning the Iron Sweepstakes. The year, <laughs> the year that I did it, mm-hmm. 1986, I was the only writer in America to write a first novel that went on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. The only one. One, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, m- most years, there's only one or two, and some years, there's none, okay? Wow. So that's how difficult it is. The real problem, in my mind, is I'm not a fan of self-publishing. I mm-hmm. think if you can't get a New York publisher interested in your story, your story isn't good enough 
to sell to the mass market. And uh, it's just, you know, the, the, you don't have the craft down. The story just doesn't get up and sing. And, uh, you know, I think people, a lot of people, waste a lot of money self-publishing. And they end up with garage full of those books and boxes that they mm-hmm. can't sell, can't give away. And, uh, you know, that's, that's sad because yes. if they spent the money learning how to write better, they might have found a book that the public wanted to read. And so, you know, I tell people, go to writers conferences, get in, get in uh, critique groups that, that a bunch of uh, people learning to write critique each other's stuff. You know, every Thursday night, you have to have something new. You have to have read somebody else's stuff. And, you know, get in there and learn to write. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, I tell people that, uh, you know, anybody can buy a guitar. But if you think that just because you learn a few chords, you're going you're gonna, to, you know, get into a rock band and make a living as a guitarist, you're crazy. There's all these people out here that they're doing the same thing. You have to learn to do it so darn well that when people hear you, they say, yes, yes, that's the guy I want to hear play. And uh, the same with painting. You know, there's a lot of people buy paint and smear it all over the place, but there's very few people that can actually break in and sell their paintings and have them exhibited in museums and high-end galleries and charge major money for them. And, uh, and we all know that. But why yeah. people that would retire from a career doing something and go home and sit down with their PC and say, I'm going to write a novel and I'm going to sell this to New York and I'm going to, you know, this is going to be my second career. It rarely ever happens that way. That's just wishful thinking. Now, the, the nonfiction you just read, Dragon's Jaw, looks like another incredible story that Americans need to hear. Uh, what would you like to share about that book and the events that it describes? Well, the book is about uh, uh, the American attempts to knock down the Thanwa Bridge in North Vietnam. They started attacking that bridge in 1965. And they didn't drop it until 1972 when they used uh, smart weapons, guided weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh but for seven years, the Americans threw themselves at that bridge. Uh, people were shot down. People were killed. Airplanes lost. You know, immense costs and treasure and blood. And and finally, when it dropped, it was it was too late. The war was lost. And so, yeah. uh, I would I would. Uh, Barrett Tillman is a personal friend of mine. He's America's premier aviation historian, and he and I have been talking about this book on and off for several years and you know and finally you know it occurred to us that the, the people that we really wanted to talk to were the guys in, that flew in 65 66 67 and they were all a lot older than me and they're not getting any younger and if we're going to talk to them we better go do it so we decided okay we'll do it and i got a publisher my agent got a publisher lined up the capo press and uh, so barrett did all the uh research that's his forte mm-hmm. he's a historian and then he gave me the research and i sat down 
and try and turned it into a book. And uh, it's a nonfiction. It's only my second nonfiction. I did one back in the early 90s about flying an old Stearman biplane all over the United States, but it didn't have a footnote in it. Boy, when you write history, you got you know, you got to, even the stuff you think you know, you better check. Yep. And uh, so it is much more difficult. And that's, that's Barrett's uh, stock and trade. He's written over 40 history books, wow. over 800, over 800 scholarly articles about aviation. And so Barrett's an expert at this and he, without his help, it would have never got done. I would have to imagine that for those men, especially who left Vietnam while that bridge was still standing, that that thing had to have been a real nemesis to them. It was, you know, we knocked down every other bridge in North Vietnam, but that one was massively overbuilt, uh, reinforced concrete and steel. And the bombs just wouldn't take it down, you know, dumb bombs, mm-hmm. you know, pre-fall, pre-fall bombs, which is all we had at that point. And uh, they just wouldn't knock it down. They twisted the steel and bent it and, and damaged the bridge severely, but it, we couldn't put it in the river. So we kept going back to get it. Let's go get the bridge, the dragon's jaw, and yeah. uh, let's get more airplanes shot down, more people killed. And uh, finally, it was attacked by the Air Force with uh, with uh, smart weapons and by the Navy with walleye. And uh, the Air Force used laser-guided bombs. The Navy used walleye weapons, and which are uh, guided. Uh, it's a guided glide bomb mm-hmm. that uh, is guided by uh, television. It's obsolete now. They don't exist anymore and are not used. But that was cutting-edge technology in 1972. And, of course, the laser-guided bombs were going to revolutionize war in the air and did. And uh, we finally saw in the Gulf War in 1991 what uh, guided weapon technology could do. It was just unbelievable to most people. They watched it on TV, you know, just – Boom, pinpoint accuracy. I mean, pickle barrel, or put it yes. right in the barrel. And yeah. uh, so you didn't waste blood and time and the treasure mm-hmm. just throwing bombs all over the landscape. Now, I, in my experience, most writers are also pretty avid readers, and I wonder if you have a favorite <laughs> detective or investigator that you like to read in. in- <laughs> Oh, heavens, I've, I've read them all. Uh, I've, uh, uh, my main thing that I enjoy reading is, is history. Mm-hmm. And I am a avid reader of history and uh, busy reading the new Vicksburg book right now. But uh, when it comes to fiction, you know, I've, uh, Daniel Silva is terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Stephen Hunter, I love uh, Stephen Hunter and his characters. Uh, Bob Lee Swaggart, Lee Child, let's see, who else? Mm-hmm. Uh, Conley, you know, yes. those guys. They're just terrific stuff. And uh, Bosch, you just read those, and I get lost in them. And, but, see, I've always loved mysteries. Uh, you know, my favorite guy is Rex Stout, who wrote wrote uh, uh, Nero Wolf. And, of course, his okay. Nero Wolf tales are told by Archie Goodwin. In the first person, that'd be 
that was uh, uh, Nero's assistant, his leg man. Mm-hmm. Anyway, those those are about uh, 50 or 60 novels. I, I've got them all, and I, I read them erotically because I wish I could write that well. And mm-hmm. so yeah. I'm constantly squeezing out the uh, the juice and trying to and trying to incorporate it into my own scribbles. Uh, you know, uh, then Agatha Christie, she, her characters, you know, the critics say, well, she used stereotypes. Well, if you're going to write mysteries, you've got to introduce a dozen possible suspects pretty darn quick. Yes. And uh, you can you can turn the stereotype on its head, but you'd better use you know a stereotype right up front. Get get the reader started, mm-hmm. and then you know then flip it and do all the other things that we do that we do. And so uh, you know it's fiction's fiction is art yes. if it's done well. Now, I asked this last question of all the authors who come on the show, Steve, mostly because it's it's fun for me. But based on that last answer, and God forbid it should come to pass, but tomorrow morning, if you were to wake up and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigation <laughs> would you assign your own homicide? <laughs> well, I, uh, I'd want Nero Wolf to investigate. <laughs> yeah. I think and, Arch- and uh, Archie, you know, the of course, Nero wouldn't leave his house, and uh, he'd send uh-huh. Archie, and Archie, <laughs> you know, questions everybody, mm-hmm. looks at everything, goes back and dumps it on Nero, and he figures out the solution. Of course, he talks to a lot of people, too, but mm-hmm. he gets them in his office and talks to them, and he figures out how it was done and who did it. He could solve it, you know. But, of course, I, I, I guarantee you, after you read the Russian account, you'll probably suspect that I'm a victim. Suicide by Clinton. <laughs> yeah, you got to watch out for that. It's it's going around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. So I, I I want I want to make crystal clear. I don't know anything true about the Clintons other than what I read in the newspaper. <laughs> you know, you know. I don't want anybody after me. Okay. <laughs> Stephen, I greatly appreciate you making time. This has been an absolute honor and a pleasure to have you, sir. Okay. Well, you have a great day, and uh, thank you very much, Gavin. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed author and thriller icon Stephen Kuntz. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.